what I'd like to do is pray. And I've, I've written down, last night I spent some time just kind of writing some things down. And, and as we celebrate who we are as a country today, what better way to do that than to come before God? And so would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we begin by thanking you with glad hearts for everything we enjoy in our country. All the freedoms that we enjoy, we, we, we thank you. Uh, we, acknowledge, we acknowledge our complete dependence upon you and we recognize that all the good gifts we, we enjoy are gifts of your hand. And so our hearts just are grateful. We're thankful that we have the privilege of, of living in this place. But Father, we also acknowledge our flaws and our sins. And we ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we do not love our neighbors well. We ask for your forgivenesses for the injustices that continue to exist. Father, have mercy on us. And in this time of growing polarization and deepening divides, would you grant us the ability to respect one another and to treat one another with dignity and, and grant us the courage to be just and compassionate. Heal us, Father. And as followers of Jesus, Enable us to represent you and your kingdom well in this time in our history as a country where life with Christ is, is so needed and so desperately needed. May we represent you well uh, with, with truth and with grace. And Father, as, as grateful as we are today to be celebrating our, our birth and our history as a country, As followers of Jesus, we recognize that everything we enjoy is dwarfed by the greatness of your kingdom, dwarfed by the greatness of your glory. And so, Father, today, we also ask for your kingdom to come in this country, that your will would be done among us. And, Father, that we and all the countries of our world would acknowledge you as king. For Father, we, we recognize that there is no political system, no culture, no people that can supplant and replace the greatness of your kingdom. And so we long for that. We, we yearn for your kingdom, your will to be done on earth and in this country as it is in heaven. And so Father, on this day, this day of memory and celebration, we come before you with gratitude, with confession, and with longing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 40. We'll get to it momentarily. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that summer normally represents a pause in the rhythms and routines uh, of our lives that shape our lives. We head to the beach, we travel to the mountains, 
We enjoy extended time with family and lazy evenings relaxing with good friends. And in coming out of this, you know, we, uh, of course, COVID has shifted how we even describe normal today. And so as a result, this summer feels more like of a reset to normal than it does a pause. And so many of you, so many of us are enjoying traveling again. And many are away this weekend. We're enjoying traveling again and enjoying friends with a, with a larger amount of freedom than we have enjoyed over the past 15 or 16 months. And it's been, it's been good. We've been longing for that. Well, the summer months, I find also afford us an opportunity to reset our spiritual normal. Um, to restore our gratitude and wonder for the goodness of God in our lives. To pause and, and just to reflect and notice and pay attention. And the anchor for this series, for these four or five weeks, is from Psalm 116. Um, these verses in Psalm 116. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. And then these words in verse 9. That I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And don't miss the connection. This place of soul rest that David describes here is what enables us to walk well with God in our everyday lives in this present moment. Soul rest is what, is what launches us into, into good living. Well, the Psalms, maybe better than any other place in the scripture, invite us to take a much needed deep breath. To kind of just step back, pause, give language to our soul, um, and I've selected five psalms, and I've looked to these psalms, I've leaned into these psalms um, for many years, but for this year in particular, and the psalms are Psalm 4, Psalm 40, Psalm 46, Psalm 62, and Psalm 63. Last week or two weeks ago, uh, we looked at Psalm 4. This morning, I want to look at Psalm 40. So if you would, look with me at verse 1. And you're going to see, as is so typical of the genre of the psalms, is there's movements. And, and, and the psalm is organized around three particular movements. And the first movement that we're going to see in the first couple of verses is the memory of God's provision. So look at verse 1. David recalled an unnamed time of difficulty during which God delivered him. Verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. Now, a couple of observations. I want you to notice David's waiting wasn't a placid waiting. I would describe it as an intense waiting. Waiting during a season of incredible stress. I mean, look how he describes it in verses, verses 2 and 3. He lifted me out of a slimy pit. Notice the language. Out of the mud and the mire. And he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. And the language, slimy pit, the mud and the mire, it points to a memory of a time that David had found himself in a dark hole with no way of escape. This phrase, mud and mire, is kind of an Old Testament Hebraism, a, a metaphor for feeling stuck and unable to escape. It was a horrible and helpless place. And so the waiting was hard. Um, it stirred in me a, a memory of a dark time 
in our family story with our second son, Jono's alcoholism. Um, we received a call late one night, and we had been a couple of years, and things were not yet breaking, but we could sense that things were worsening. And we received a call late one night, and it may have been maybe even early in the morning, as I recall. And when we picked up the phone, uh, Jonathan's voice, he, Jonathan was incoherent. His voice was dark and, and even demonic sounding. As Vernon and I sat on the bed, we were shaken, we were frightened. And the best we could do in that moment was try to keep Jono on the phone fearful of what might happen to him that night if we hung up. And the next morning, pretty quickly, I headed to, to Bloomington, Indiana, where he was living and going to school, uh, to be with Jono and, and do whatever I could. Um, we later learned that Jono had called others that night. We weren't alone. There had been other calls. And other people had experienced the same uh, thing we had experienced. And um, in his desperation, he was reaching out to friends and families to rescue him. Instead, his call scared people, it frightened people. Looking back with, with the perspective of all these years, and uh, Jonathan's been sober for eight years now, but looking back with the perspective of time, it was the beginning of a brokenness that was also the beginning of recovery for him. But that season was dark. I can remember praying with an intensity that was born out of our helplessness and desperation because we realized we couldn't do anything. And we were watching this play out right in, in, in front of us. And Well, David turned to God with that kind of intensity, waiting for God's uh, deliverance at a time of real desperation that he leaves unnamed, I think largely for our benefit. And we'll talk more about that in a few moments. But notice David's description of God stepping in, God's intervention. And just these quick phrases, God turned to me, God heard my cry, he lifted me out of the pit, he set my feet on a rock, he gave me a firm place to stand and just in rapid fire. He, he describes God after some period of time, and we don't know how long he waited, but after some period of time, God stepped in. And he, he brought language to it. I was, I was halfway to Bloomington, about a nine-hour drive. I was halfway to Bloomington and was driving through Nashville. And I remembered that the first four hours of the drive that morning were emotional for me. Um, not knowing how I would find my son, uh, not knowing how to pray, not knowing what to ask for, just knowing I needed wisdom and resources that I knew I didn't possess. Um, then I got a call from Jono. Never forget it. Um, he was hungover, he was groggy, but he was coherent. And I could, I, could, I could hear and feel the desperation in his voice. And 
Fighting through his tears, he asked if I would consider driving up to help him find and enter a rehab facility. And I had this wonderful joy of, of fighting through my tears and telling him I was already halfway there. And God had begun. And in that moment, I experienced what David had, what David described after months and years of Vernon and I waiting, God, God began turning to us. He heard our cry and he lifted us out of the pit and gave us a firm place to stand as I arrived to join my son. We all have dark places and moments, don't we? We all have memories of these times when we found ourselves in these places or we find ourselves in places of desperation and helplessness. But we also have memories of God's presence and God's provision. And I suspect even as we're looking at these verses, the memories of your stories are likely surfacing in your mind. And you recall a time or two or three when, when it was so dark, you'd, you didn't envision a way out, but now looking back, you, you recognize that God had stepped in. He intervened and he delivered. But it's often hard to find words to express or to capture um, our experience of God's presence with us during such a moment. And, and David's, notice David's language in verse 3. David just says, he put a new song in my mouth. A hymn of praise to our God. This phrase, a new song. If you've read the Psalms, you notice that that's a very familiar phrase in the Psalm. It appears over and over and over again. And it's a phrase that is describing the response of tasting God's goodness to us. It feels new. There's a new song. And this, this praise begins to emerge from our life. It's a song of hope, a, a song of gladness, and, and even a song of joy in suffering well, you know, for Jesus' sake. Now, I want to talk about it for a moment. Because we're mistaken if we think of new only in terms of the first time we're experiencing something unfamiliar to us. Uh, Vernon and I spent a few days in Nashville week before last with Vernon's sister and husband. And we had not spent time in Nashville before. And so the, we had driven around it and through it. But the city was in many ways new to us. Uh, the first day was spent walking downtown along Broad Street, and if you've ever been there, enjoying the sights and sounds of music coming from every club and every restaurant. Um, I even found a taco, a taco Bell with an open window and live music coming out of the Everybody, just a thousand musicians trying to find their way to, to fame and fortune. Music everywhere, buses everywhere. The second day, we spent in a much quieter place around the campus of Vanderbilt University. A wonderful little community, just walking around. Uh, we ate at a number of cool restaurants. Uh, um, it was the first time we had experienced a taste of Nashville. It was new to us. That is not the new that David is describing. Better to understand new here in verse 40 as a fresh reminder of something familiar. Um, not a first-time experience, 
but another story of God's everyday presence with his people. Uh, Do you remember the song we used to sing? The steadfast love of the Lord never fails us. His mercies never come to an end. Remember the next line? They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we experience over and over again the newness and the freshness of God's faithfulness. But if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, there's something else that's very familiar to you. What also is familiar is that while God's faithfulness is new every morning, so is our forgetfulness. That God's steadfast love is so easy to lose sight of. So easy to forget. And in the throes of the next day's crises, the next day's challenges, the next day's trouble, God's, God's past provision for us and his, the newness and the freshness of his faithfulness kind of fades in the background. Well, David's hope was that his personal experience with God would inspire others to notice God. Now look, look at verse 3. Let's go on. He put, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And this next, these next, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. See, our, our trust, our, our celebrating the newness and the freshness of, of God's faithfulness becomes the visible, intangible influence that our lives have in the lives of others. And people notice, even when we don't think they're looking, people notice and, and our trust inspires their trust. And then David pivots to the next movement. And he begins uh, in, in verse 4. And, and David's experience with the newness of, of God's faithfulness prompted him to, to reflect on his life with God. And share some things he had learned along the way. Uh, and, and I'm going to share four things that, that David learned. Uh, great kind of anchor points for all of our spiritual journey. The first thing he, he reflected on was the joy of properly directed trust. The joy of properly directed trust. Look at verse four, verse 4. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud or to those who turn aside to false gods. You know, sometimes we read language like that and it just feels so detached. But but what David is describing for us is the trust. When we, when we trust God, we experience a richness and a sense of well-being that is found in no other way. He uses the word blessed. It's a sense of just deep in the bones well-being, a, a soul rest that, that nothing can, can describe or capture. And by contrast is our tendency to look to other people and places. Even though we know that as we look to God, we experience this, this profound sense of wellness, our tendency is to look to other people and places. And so we look around us to people we perceive whose lives are working better than ours. People who seem to be making life work. Um, confident people. Self-assured people, people that are enjoying things like success and power and wealth. Uh, on the surface, the little need to look to God. And, and, and David names it what it is, false gods. All the imposters that we look to for security and satisfaction and how easy it is for even those of us who love God to find ourselves drifting 
to all the imposters that are surrounding us that we think will, will make our lives work better. And, and David's reflection simply reminds us that true security and satisfaction is found when we direct our trust in the right direction toward the right person. Uh, there was a second thing David re reflected on, and that was just this acute awareness of God's everyday presence. As he reflected upon his life, uh, uh, it, it just stirred uh, uh, the sense of God just kind of walking with him. Verse 5, uh, many, Lord my, God, are the, my Lord my God, are the wonders you've done for us. New things you plan for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, there would be too many to, to declare. David grabs this great word, wonders, uh, and it's the supernatural displays of God's greatness and goodness. Uh, the things that there's no human explanation for other than God. And you look at it and we just go, ah, that's God. God has stepped in in a way that there's, there's no other explanation for it. It takes our breath away. There's a sense of awe. There's a sense of wonder at what God was doing. And Tafet says, there are many. And the things that God has planned for us uh, are incomparable. He says, there, there are too many to declare. And what I love about a, a verse like this is David, and this, is, this catches us off guard. David describes the reality of his wonders being so abundant and so around us all the time. He says, this is normal. It's not exceptional. It's not the rare thing. It's, it's the normal experience of those who walk with God. And, and so it raises, it raises a, a, a needed question for us today. Do we notice? Are you noticing? Are you and I paying attention to the moments and the days of our lives? Is, is that the outlook that we bring into our lives each day? Do we begin and engage each day with a holy curiosity that wonders, where am I going to see and experience God's presence today? That just kind of frames our outlook and our perspective and our posture as we begin to engage all the realities. Now, I'll confess to you, my outlook is too often rooted in, 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 a, in the scarcity of God's presence with me rather than the abundance of God's presence with me. And, and, and David just says, he looks back and, and what he sees is there are these moments that God every day, his presence was all around him. There was a third thing David reflected on. And that is that devotion is more life-giving than duty. Right, look, at, look at verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. All the religious activity. He says, you weren't interested in that. But my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. The sacrifices, the offerings, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, those were all the things that Old Testament followers of God were required to do to be obedient and responsible. And we're all familiar with the rut of being responsible in our spiritual lives. 
you know, showing up in the ways that we've always showed up. Um, going through all the religious motions we've always gone through. And while there's value in being responsible, it's also the place we lose our hearts. And, and it becomes tedious and superficial. And then there's these moments where God opens our ears to a moment of crystal clarity. What God really desires from us is devotion, not duty. Um, he wants us to be awake and responsive and available of verse 7. And, and then he said, here I am, I've come, I'm here. As it is written about me in the scroll, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is, within, is written within my heart. See, David is describing the soul-refreshing, life-giving place of desire that expresses itself as devotion. And he steps back from all the religious busyness and activity and the duty. And, and, and devotion is, is what births out of a sense of desire and He's just inviting us to a place of desire and devotion. You know, I, I reflect upon it, and devotion looks different in the different seasons of our lives, doesn't it? There's no one-size-fits-all description of what desire and devotion looks like. It's as unique to each of you as, as we are people. And it's unique to our seasons. Um, for me today, in my mid-60s, you know, I, I hear, here's some of the things I noticed in my mid-60s about desire and, and devotion and duty. Um, my desire to prove something to other people is less strong. I've kind of outgrown that. Uh, true confession, also less strong, is my desire to impress, please, or satisfy you. <laughs> you know, there, there used to be a day when that was the fuel I lived on. How do I impress and how do I please? How do I keep a church family happy? That's less true for me today. Um, things that once expressed my commitment to God, things like busyness and burning the candle at both ends, no longer do. And the way I describe commitment is very different today. And as I look back, I regret the posing I've done from time to time, trying to appear competent and effective and relevant. And so today, for me, uh, in my 60s, my mid-60s, my desire, my devotion revolves around just a couple of things. You know, one of the wonderful things about aging is things get clearer and you, you gain perspective. Um, Unfortunately, as other things are falling apart. <laughs> but my, my sense of, of devotion is very simple today. It revolves around loving and ser serving Verna well. Um, loving and serving you well as your pastor. Being fruitful in this season of my life. And... Not, not moving into a retirement way of thinking that shuts things down, but anticipates a fruitful, good season ahead and, and an aging well. Uh, growing into a loving, gentle, and wise man. So here's a question I want you to linger with this week. 
What does desire and devotion look like for you in this season of your life? Uh, maybe you're in your 20s and all of life is ahead of you. And you're dreaming big dreams. What does desire and devotion look like for you? Maybe you're in your 30s or 40s and active kids and a busy family and a, a growing, demanding career. What does desire and devotion look like for you in that season? Or maybe you're in your 50s and 60s and in the middle season of your life and you're, you're pivoting. And, or maybe you're in your 70s and 80s and you're entering the final season of your life. What does desire look like for you? Are you living out of desire or out of duty? Desire is more life-giving to the soul. The final thing David re reflected on was just the privilege of being a glad witness to God's presence. Um, look at verse 9. David says, I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I, I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. And, and, and what we begin to step away, sharing the stories of God's faithfulness is so natural. It's the byproduct of, of this life with God. Um, I, I read something interesting a uh, little book called Gathering the Fragments. And the writer said this, a disciple experiences a joy and peace so deep within that he or she is compelled to share it with others. When this hidden mission, I love this phrase, the hidden mission, sharing our God stories, begins to emerge in us we find other people who also know that they have been haunted or pursued by Jesus and they're drawn to each other to grow together in him. And the sharing of stories, it, it, it awakens the desires of others. It pursues and reminds us. It's the life-giving nature of community. But it's also the casualty when our faith journey becomes too private. Or when our faith journey, we become too self-conscious of what other people might think. Or when our lives are lived only in the past. Or when we can do nothing more than parrot the stories we've heard from other people rather than our own stories. You see, glad witness is the product of our real-time participation in God's creative, consistent presence in our lives. Keep that up for just a moment. I want you to ponder that. See, glad, and I'll say public witness, is the product of our real-time participation in God's creative, consistent presence in our lives. As we pay attention and as we are aware of God's presence in our lives doing all the creative things God does to show up the natural byproduct is we want to talk about it we have stories to tell about God let me make an observation about spiritual growth 
Um, you know, in these first 10 verses, David reflected on his personal experience with God's faithfulness. Um, we often use this expression, experience is the best teacher. It's not always true. See, we don't mature from experience. We mature by reflecting on our experience. Big difference. Our ability to take what we're seeing in God and, and taking the time to thoughtfully notice and, and name what we're learning from our life experience about God and, and about ourselves. And it's part of the reason that practices like silence and solitude and journaling always appear in the lives of growing people. Whenever you read the biographies of growing people, you find certain marks, silence, solitude, and journaling, only because it's the vehicle by which they're noticing and examining and reflecting on God's presence in their lives. Nothing about silence or solitude or journaling changes anybody, but reflecting on experience does. Well, in verse 9, David pivots. I've got to move quickly. In verse 9, David pivots from his memory of God's past goodness to a prayer for, a prayer for the presence. And, and, and why this is so important is something you and I know. We're going to wake up tomorrow, have a great day of worship today, and then life continues, and with it, so does our troubles. You can count on that. It, it's, going to be, it's going to be there. Uh, so in verse 11... Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and, and faithfulness always protect me. A different challenge or crisis was now front and center for David. But David looked again to God, and his memory reached into the present as a gift. And, and he says, may your love and faithfulness always protect me. That the use of the Hebrew would be better. May it continue to protect me. In the ways that it has in this present moment, I love how the, the New Living Translation says, God, don't hold back your mercy from me. I need it all. In verse 12, he tells us why. For troubles without number surround me. Ever thought that? Sure you have. Troubles without number surround me. And to complicate matters even more, my sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. It's, it's not clear what David's talking about. Maybe David's trouble were the making of his own. In other words, they were created by his own sin. Or maybe David's troubles were, were stirring sinful, sinful responses in him. I tend to think it's the latter. And, and for me, this is often the biggest struggle. Um, the ways the internal world of my flesh and my false self start to rage when the wheels come off. Uh, the ways that Satan assaults my thoughts and my emotions. At that moment, what I do with my internal world is a far bigger challenge and more consequential than my external reality. And my tendency is to think if I can just manage my troubles well, then my soul will be fine. It's the reverse. You see, caring for our soul well is what enables us to manage our troubles well. 
And, and, and if we're only managing our troubles and not our soul, we will find ourselves exhausted, fatigued, resentful, bitter. And in the moment that David wrote this, he felt overwhelmed by the combination of his troubles and his sin. He was losing his perspective. He was losing his ability to see his way through it all. He was losing confidence and courage. And, and he, he wrote, they, the troubles and sin, are, are more than the hairs of my head. You know, for some of us, this is actually good news. <laughs> you know, uh, we're trending in the right direction with the, and, and the loss of hair offers us some hope. <laughs> but David is saying, they are more than the hairs of my head and notice my heart fails within me. I love this because David, even though David has experienced the richness of, of God's presence with him, in the moment he still is, is longing for something. He's feeling the weight of it, so he cries out to God, be pleased to save me, Lord. Deliver me. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. And then we're given a, what may be a hint into the circumstances that prompted David to write the psalm in verse 14. May all, may all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire to ruin me be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, ah, we've got him, be appalled at their own shame. David was praying for protection from people that were intent on hurting him and ruining his reputation. And as we've grown to, to expect from David, his prayer is raw in its honesty. He felt completely safe with God. Openly he says, God, shame and disgrace those who are trying to ruin me. And part of the beauty of the Psalms is what they model. They're, they're always inviting us into a, an earthy relationship with God marked by honest trust. Nothing sugar-coated, nothing superficial, just real, just earthy, just what we're, where we're at in our gut right at the moment that when we're facing our trouble. And of course, part of the genius of the Psalms, when they are not too specific, is the anonymity invites us to fill in the blank with the troubles and sin that surround us. And as I look around the room, I know some of your stories. You know, and many of you are facing troubles and sin, and you're feeling exactly what David felt. Well, David's honesty landed him in a place of humility. Verse 16, but may all who seek you Rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. Don't miss this. Here's what David's doing. May we rejoice and be glad. May we be confident in your greatness before we see the deliverance. In the middle of it. This is the soul rest that I described earlier. Return to your rest, for the Lord has been good to you, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living, even in the midst of my trouble and sin. Rest is most powerfully displayed in how we wait for deliverance in the midst of our troubles, not in the absence of them. Rest is not something we look at and go, ah, it's over. Soul rest is offered to us in the midst while it's still raging around us. And I love where David ends the psalm. But as for me, I'm poor and needy. 
May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. David wasn't afraid to admit his desperate need for God's help. You know, Jesus referred to this as poor in spirit in the Gospels. And I've shared with you that one of the things I'm enjoying in this season of my spiritual journey is poetry. I haven't always enjoyed poetry. I'm gaining a, a love for it. And I'm, I'm reading in these weeks a series of poems that were written around the Beatitudes. And here's one I read just this week about poor in spirit. A beech tree in winter. You can envision a beech tree in winter. White intricacies unconcealed against blue sky and billowed clouds carries in its emptiness ripeness. The sap ready to rise on signal and buds alert to burst into leaf. And then after a season of summer, a lean ring to remember the lush-filled promises. Empty again into wise poverty that lets the reaching branches stretch a millimeter more towards the heavens and the bowl, which is the trunk, expand ever so slightly and push its roots deeper into the firm foundation. Lucky to be leafless. Deciduous reminder to let it go. May I state the obvious? Living poor in spirit doesn't come easily for most of us, does it? We carry with us thick layers of self-sufficiency and pride that stand in the way of our being comfortably needy and dependent upon God. We're so afraid of being needy. And David says before God, be comfortably needy. My favorite line in this poem is, empty again into wise poverty. You see, there is wisdom in recognizing how poor and needy we really are. And once there, and arguably only there, are we most ripe to experience God's favor and fruitfulness. And so God in his marvelous grace allows these troubles to swirl and circulate because he knows that it's driving our, our, our praise up, our roots deep. And something ripe is going to emerge in, in, in us and, and God's fruitfulness begins to just burst. Soul rest. Well, let's pray. Father, what a, what a rich psalm, good psalm. And Father, we thank you for the, the honesty of David's life and the freshness of, of what David displays before us. And Father, I, I, I know we all long for that kind of soul rest. With whatever it is that each of us are facing in our daily experience, our unique troubles, our unique sins, things that suffocate and surround us. Father, we look to you. 
but we look to you with the memories of your faithfulness and your goodness and your generosity to us. And Father, stir within us just a natural voice of praise for your everyday doing of life with us. And Father, my prayer for each of us is that you would continue to break away and strip away our self-sufficiency. Make us comfortably needy. Comfortably dependent upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.